Wow. <laughs> Good morning. It is a privilege, really, to be with you here this morning. And I'm really excited to be part of this series, Can You Dig It? It has been groovy, hasn't it? <laughs> now, just to deal with this little tidbit up front, I have the honor of coming into this conversation late in the game. But it's also kind of like drawing the short straw because now I have to meet a bar that's already been set up here. However, you could also say that I drew the golden ticket because this morning I get to talk to you about the coup de grace of all truth about God because this morning I get to talk to you about the part of theology that we call Jesus. That's right. The God, the man, God in the flesh, the Savior of the universe, and the hero of the ages, Jesus Christ. You might ask, Glenn, how did you swing that? You know, because you can't have Christianity without Christ. That's a big deal. But how humbling is that? That I have to be up here and and, and try to do justice to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, several weeks ago, Pastor Brad talked to you about God in talking about the Trinity. And he said in that message that he would fall short of explaining God. Well, this morning, I'm going to tell you, I am happy to follow in his footsteps. (laughs) So, having said that, I can tell you that I am not alone in falling short of trying to be able to explain Jesus Christ. Throughout the ages, the greatest minds, theologians, scientists, philosophers, and historians have been trying to discover the identity of this man, Jesus Christ. The early church, which was known as the Way, they spread their belief in Jesus Christ through the Roman Empire, and they even died horrible and inexplicable deaths for their beliefs. Now let me ask you this question. If you were on trial for what you believed... And the advice that you got was to admit to everything that they accuse you of. Would you do that? Like Christianity. The belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever by symbolically, if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Amen. Actually, that sounds about right, yeah. Yes, yes, Your Honor, that, we, 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 that's what we believe. Can you dig it? <laughs> Followers of Christ, then, would become the Achilles' heel of the Roman rulers for centuries. Now, even the Jewish historian Josephus, and he wrote, this is interesting, he wrote within a hundred years of Jesus' life, he said, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Now, thousands of years later, we're still talking about him. Fifty generations, societies, universities, institutions, nations, and empires have all been molded and shaped 
in his memory. Throughout history, Jesus Christ has been a personality that has mesmerized, perplexed, confused, intrigued, and captured the imagination of literally billions of people all around the world. Now, going along this morning with the theme of the Summer of Love, it was actually in 1970 that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice teamed up together to introduce their concept rock rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar of Broadway fame. Now, this production is a completely sung-through musical that portrays Jesus Christ's last six days on earth. And it's actually through the eyes of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, who is actually the character with the title track and solo that we hear in the video here, assuming we have the video. Wow, can you dig it? I I guess I did, because I really got into it. Hey, if you're going to go, go all in. (laughs) You know, that that, uh, musical was what actually inspired this uh, June 21st, 1971 cover of Time magazine. The Jesus Revolution is what that was called. That was our Lord's debut on the cover of Time. And then he would appear six times after that. A more recent uh, version was 1996. And it asks this age-old question, who is Jesus? And then later, there was the, the cover that said, Jesus at 2000, that happened, this, this was an article that appeared, or a, 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 an issue that appeared at the end of 1999, getting ready for Y2K, and it actually featured an interesting article by Reynolds Price. This is interesting because this is not a Christian magazine, obviously, and this is what he wrote in this article. It would require... Much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is the prevalent system of denoting the years based on an erroneous 6th century calculation of the date of his birth, but a serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and enduring as that of Jesus. It's an astonishing conclusion in light of the fact that Jesus was a man who lived a short life in a rural backwater of the Roman Empire, who died in agony as a convicted criminal, and who may never have intended so much as a small portion of the effects worked in his name. And then the year 2000, Y2K, brought renewed discussion about Jesus, like the late Peter Jennings' program, The Search for Jesus. I remember watching this program, and then afterwards, the local seminary professors, they would comment on what they just heard. I remember one wise Christian leader, he said, 
You know, if I just watched this program and I knew nothing else about Jesus, then I would still be looking for him because they surely didn't find him. (laughs) And the search didn't stop there because, amazingly, known atheist and famed movie producer and director James Cameron, he dabbled in archaeology, looking to solve mysteries related to the biblical accounts. Teaming up with Jewish archaeologists, he claimed to have discovered the lost tomb of Jesus that contained the very remains of Jesus Christ. And then he revealed his find in the 2007 documentary film, The Tomb of Jesus. And this, this film, it actually won an award for the best sound in a documentary film. It didn't win anything else because it was a sham. It was a ruse. And even the producers kind of later admitted that, hey, we were kind of using theatrics and trickery to prey on the fears of people because of the controversy. You know, as famous as Jesus is, to a whole world of people, he remains a mystery. One of the most difficult parts of theology that we can get our minds around is this idea of Jesus Christ. A God who has a bod? (laughs) Well, that sounds pretty groovy. (laughs) It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. After all, it sounds absurd that a perfect God walked around the earth as a typical human being. A human being that needed to eat and drink and sleep and relieve his bowels and sweat A human being that didn't smell very nice after a long day in the shop, especially if he didn't bathe for days on end. A human being that felt the same emotions that we feel, anger and sadness, who surely cried terrible tears of grief and had sleepless nights and and suffered from the common cold and flu and even maybe an upset tummy from, from unrefrigerated hummus. One who had to bandage his cuts and scrapes and whose hands were calloused and splintered from working in a shop. Indeed, one who bled and died, who was beaten, bruised, scourged, and brutally executed on a cross. How could the divine God also be human. You know, this, contrary to Dan Brown's account of church history in the Da Vinci Code, was the central issue of the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. It wasn't which books should be in the Bible. It was this issue of the identity of Jesus Christ. And based on the scriptures and the eyewitness accounts that had been handed down from those who actually knew Jesus, the early church leaders concluded that Jesus Christ was fully God, existing from all of eternity past and before the beginning of time. But at the same time, they also concluded that he was also fully human at the same time. Born of a virgin woman, conceived by God himself, who lived and died and was buried and was resurrected again to life, not as a disembodied spirit or a ghost, but as a real, in-the-flesh human being who ascended into heaven in a body and who still has that body in a place 
that we call heaven. Both God and man in the same person. Now, theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. And that's fancy talk for God in a bod. Mr. God, live in the flesh. In 1995, Joan Osborne's single, One of Us, it hit the top 40 charts, becoming probably the one hit of her wonder. The familiar chorus was, of course, What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Well, I don't know that the Lord was really worried about catching the bus. This memorable pop song, it hits on a nerve because it relates to the identity of Jesus. You see, the trouble with this notion of God in a physical body is that to those who haven't grown up in the church, this sounds like crazy talk, like a fantasy or a science fiction, or like a Jewish zombie, so to speak. And to those of us who have grown up in the church with this concept, we tend to take it for granted. You see, we gloss over it and we lose its real significance. And the common thread for both camps is that we lose the why. Isn't that the question? Why? Why is it that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time? Why is that important? And why is it necessary? And to help us answer that question this morning, we're going to consult with an eyewitness account of his closest follower on earth. And that's John. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to John chapter 6. Also, if you turn, turn there on your device, however you, I guess you don't turn there, but you get there somehow. John chapter 6, and we're going to read an extended passage starting in verse 35. And we're going to take that all the way through verse 69. So hang in there. That's John chapter 6, verses 35 through 69. This is Jesus speaking. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread, of, bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes 
has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said unto them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe And know that you are the Holy One of God. I realize that was a little bit long of a passage. I thank you for hanging in there with that. And to provide you some context with what we just read, that comes right after a major miracle that we know is the feeding of the 5,000. A miracle that was recorded in all four of the eyewitness gospel accounts. Now, during this miracle, Jesus literally pulled off a dinner impossible banquet for 5,000 people, not including women and children. And you know what was cool about it was not only did people get something to eat, but they all had their fill. And not only did they get their fill, but they collected 12 basketfuls of doggy basket from the leftovers. That's pretty groovy, isn't it? But wait, there's more. Because then later that evening, we find the 12 disciples in the middle of an episode of Galilee's deadliest catch, being tossed about in their small boat by a wicked storm. And then who do we see? Literally walking on top of the waves of water. But Jesus himself. Not on a surfboard or a hovercraft Segway, but literally walking on top of the water. And then when he walks on the water, he walks toward the boat, and when he gets into the boat with the other 12 disciples, the storm stops. It calms down. (laughs) That's pretty groovy too. 
But then the next day, he starts talking about bread and life and eating his flesh. It was all very confusing. And all of a sudden, the crowds can't dig it. And the more he keeps on talking, the less and less they dig it. And by the time he's done talking, literally everyone ditches him, thinking that he was crazy. The man that just a day before they were with, they watched him feed 5,000 people, Jesus, the walking bread machine. And they all ditched him. All but the 12 disciples. And when he asked them, do you want to leave too? It was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, I imagine Peter at that moment, and I I don't know this for sure, but he may have been thinking, you know, well, Lord, what you said, it, it didn't make any sense, really, and we don't really get it. But where else are we going to go? You alone can get us to heaven. You alone are the only one who can get us backstage passes to see God. And that's where Peter perhaps accidentally stumbled on the heart of the matter, giving us insight into the identity of Jesus. As we've touched on different truths this summer, We've talked about the high watermark of, of the Bible. This is the great commandment that says that we are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And indeed, Jesus told his followers that they would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But how do you do that exactly? Just how do you love and worship the invisible God who was and is and who will always be, who sees all and knows all and is everywhere all at the same time, who stands outside of and inside of both space and time, who created everything from nothing. How do you worship the God who, as the Bible tells us, no one can see and live Earlier this summer, Josh Wheatley talked about an instance where God actually decided he was going to talk to Moses, which was really cool. The only problem was God had to put Moses in the middle of a mountain so that he wasn't instantly vaporized when God talked talked to him. So you see, the problem that we have is one of access. How do we relate to God? How do we worship God? an invisible spirit? How do we see what can't be seen? And that's just the beginning of the problem. Because not only is God, God, but also we are not. We are human. Not just human, but imperfectly human. And last week, Pastor Chris explained that due to the human disobedience of God, we've literally tarnished all of creation with the guilt of sin. God made it perfect, and then we killed it. We ruined it. And as a result, we're separated from God, both physically and morally. So you see, if there was any hope for our physical flesh and blood world that is literally dying from the inside out, 
then the, the solution is obvious, isn't it? We would need God to come to us. Because we can't get to him, but because he is God, he can come to us. And the awesome truth is that he did. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 tells us, For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He sent himself, who existed from all eternity past, who was there at the beginning of time, creating all that we see from waste and wild, from literally nothing, sent to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin teenager in a backwater town who was engaged not to a king or a nobleman or even a priest, but to a simple carpenter. Born as an ordinary person, an ordinary baby, just like us. He was flailing and crying and yearning for his nursing mother who needed to be swaddled and burped and protected and have his diaper changed. A human being who experienced physical life in a human body with its stages of strength and weakness and helplessness and power and pleasure and pain. Later in Hebrews 4.15, we are reminded, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So the big idea this morning, for those of you who are keeping your notes, is that because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, we have eternal access to God. Because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, we have eternal access to God. Now, Colossians 2.9 in the New Living Translation says that for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. In Jesus Christ, we truly have a God who is just like one of us. The creator of the universe, who created everything from nothing and breathed it into existence, who hung every star that we see, can now sit down and look us in the eye and have a conversation over a cup of coffee. The same God that we call the great I am. <laughs> in the Hebrew, Yahweh is now the same God who can pat us on the back or shake our hand or give us a hug. Jesus, God in the flesh, God in a bod. You know, now we can relate to God without having to wear a mountain as our environment suit. And that's pretty cool. That's pretty groovy. But I have a question you might ask. <laughs> How is that possible? Aren't God and I mutually exclusive? Aren't we kind of like opposites 
I mean, wouldn't his godness be polluted by my humanness? And that seems like a valid argument. You know, it's no secret that we live in wine country. And if you were to take several barrels of wine, the most expensive wine, and pour them down the sewer, well, you would get sewer. Now, that said, if you were to take a teaspoon of sewer water and then put it into a barrel of that fine wine, well, you would get sewer. Because that makes sense to us. Anything impure would just corrupt the whole thing and make it all impure. But that's where we struggle when we try to apply that to God. Because surely we think humanity, it must corrupt the divinity and purity of God. But that's where our understanding breaks down because it actually is just the opposite way. Because if you add God to anything, the result is perfection. And thank God that's the truth because just as Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human, we can be made perfect too when we are in Christ. You see, unlike the wine and the sewer water, God is light. And light chases darkness out of every nook and cranny where it shines. We noticed from the passage that we read this morning that it was in the context of these two distinct miracles, both awesome and powerful in their own ways. But they also emphasized both the physical and the spiritual natures of Jesus. You see, Jesus could have made the feeding of the 5,000 the miracle of when 5,000 people were just inexplicably not hungry anymore. Because after all, the spirit doesn't need barley crackers and sardines. But he didn't. He made them dinner. And that's because he never intended to make us unhuman. In fact, he gives us exactly what we need in our physical bodies. More than that, he gives us what we can experientially enjoy. And then later that evening, he walks across the Sea of Galilee. And that proves that even in a body, he is God. And that even the laws of physical nature can be suspended and come under the authority of who he is as God. You know, that kind of makes me wonder because there's a story there where Peter actually walked out onto the water with Jesus for a time. It kind of makes you wonder just what else might be possible when we are also resurrected like Jesus Christ in eternity through faith in the one who created everything and holds it all together. Now, when God created the world, including us, he made it perfect. And the Bible tells us that he saw all that he made and it was very good. So when he made Adam and Eve, he didn't make them with onboard imperfection and sin. We are the ones who added that ingredient. And Jesus is often referred to as the last Adam. And the Hebrew word Adam, which we get the name Adam from, means man. And a way to think about that is that if Adam was the prototype, then Jesus is the proto-right. Because he was perfect. And many students of the Bible have concluded that Jesus was actually the most human of all of humanity. You see, humanity didn't take and strip the God out of Jesus. Jesus puts the God into humanity. Now, it was through humanity that sin entered the world. 
And it's because of that that through humanity, that debt must be repaid. Now, only through Jesus can we find our salvation and our sanctification and our ultimate glorification. And that's important because only in his humanity could atonement, that restitution, that debt that needed to be repaid for our sin, be made. But only in his divine nature could it actually work, could it actually be sufficient. Only in him can we access heaven and see God face to face. Jesus himself said that I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's not just exclusive religious ease, mystical dogma. It's not symbolism. It's practical advice. It's not religious. It's logistical. Because he literally is the bridge between humanity and the divine God. That's exactly what he was trying to explain to his followers in the passage that we read this morning. Hey, you want to see God and relate to God? He's right here in front of you. It's me. Believe in me. Hold on to me. Follow me and then you will never hunger or thirst again, physically or spiritually. It's in this union of his divine and human natures that we have the hope that we also can live forever actually experiencing life as we are with the almighty, always present, perfect God. That's why Jesus is the focal point of our faith. The primacy and preeminence of Christ explained. Jesus Christ is our all in all. He is our everything. And in fact, to the athlete, he is the victor's crown. To the attorney, he is the faithful and true witness. To the agnostic, he is the mighty God. To the archaeologist, he is the ancient of days. To the astronomer, he is the bright and morning star. To the baker, he is the bread of life. To the carpenter, he is the sure and true foundation. To the chemist, (laughs) he changed water into wine. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the engineer, he is the straight and narrow way. To the electrician, he is the true light. To the farmer, he is the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the historian, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the investigator, he is the hidden treasure in the field. To the judge, he is the righteous judge of all men. To the leaders of the world, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. To the librarian, he is the word of God. To the locksmith, he holds the keys to death and hell, (laughs) dispelling the boast of sin and grave. To the mason, he is the chief cornerstone. To the mechanic, he is the restorer of all things. To the pastor, he is the head of the body, which is the church. To the psychiatrist, he is the wonderful counselor. 
to the philosopher, he is the wisdom of the ages. To the photographer, he is the image of the invisible God. To the politician, he is the healer of the nations. To the priest, he is the mediator between God and man. To the scientist, he is the undeniable evidence. To the shepherd, he is the Lamb of God. To the student, he is the author of knowledge. To the surgeon, he is the resurrection and the life. To the teacher, he is the truth and the way. To the truck driver, he's the wheel within the middle of the wheel. To the veterinarian, he will make the lion lie down beside the lamb. To the writer, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. To the yachtsman, he is the lighthouse of safety. And to the zoologist, all creation will praise him. Groovy? Groovy. And again I say, groovy. Can you dig it? (laughs) The point of this morning has been to explain the doctrine of Christology in one sitting. And to that end, I am proud to have fallen desperately short of doing justice to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we close this morning, the big takeaway is that because Jesus is the one that God sent, both fully God and fully human, God in a bod, we now have access to God and to eternity. And just as he ascended to a physical place and a physical body and lives forever in the presence of the Father, so also will those of us who place our trust in him. My prayer this morning is that this has been an encouragement to your faith in Jesus Christ and to the person who may not have decided who Jesus is. I hope this filled in some gaps. And honestly, I hope this placed a rock in your shoe that will make you do business once and for all with who Jesus is. And if that's you this morning, you want to do business with that rock in your shoe, it really just is as simple, as crazy as it might sound, as telepathically telling him that you want to trust him for access to God and to see God. And if that's you this morning, don't hesitate to ask me, one of the pastors, somebody you know here at Trinity. We'd be happy to help you with sorting through that and what your next step is. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name for you, Jesus Christ, for coming to us, God in a body, both fully God and fully man, providing us with access eternally to you. Jesus, you truly are a superstar. And we thank you. We thank you that you came to us so that we might be with you forever. And we give you the the praise, Lord Jesus, and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.